Amen. Hey, um, who would have guessed one hour of sleep makes that much of a difference? I am just, man, oh man, I'm having trouble getting going today. So some of you may be saying, praise the Lord. Uh, um, it just means I've had more coffee, people. That's all it means. Hey, I, uh, I got an email um, a while back. I don't know if you've ever gotten this in email. There's just sort of um, off the wall a little bit as though you've sort of been invited halfway into a conversation, although I'm the only one in the conversation with this person. And it was a good friend of mine, and he sent me an email telling me why he thought the Rockies were going to have a good season. <clears throat> I know. that's all right. And here's what he said. Here is why I have hope for the Rockies this year. So many Colorado-based teams have tried to find that big-ticket free agent. But it was very rare that that person actually brought a championship to the team or even did very well. And he goes on to walk me through the history of Colorado sports. He references Allen Iverson. He references Mike Hampton. He references some other people. And this is how he closes his random email to me. Every one of our position players... Uh, to kick off the 2013 season has a dangerous bat and can play their position with style. I'm not saying we're a team of all-stars or that we'll win the World Series, but if our pitching can do anything, which it won't, can do anything this season, I believe we have great potential to surprise not only this city, but the rest of the baseball community as well. We have a very strong core that has played together for a few years now. Here's hoping to something magical taking place in Lodo this year. And I read it and went, <laughs> seriously? Seriously, we lost almost 100 games last year, did nothing in the offseason. And yeah, have you ever been around somebody that just sort of oozed hope, though? I mean, even if it was completely without base, completely uh, not founded on anything factual whatsoever, that they just sort of they breathe hope? Um, and, and then you have people sort of the opposite vein, where everything is just despair and hopelessness all the time. I mean, these are the people who, uh, and, and hey, don't get me wrong, we live in a, in a time that's, that's difficult, but, you know, this is the, the sequester is the end of the world, right? And, and hey, who knows, right? Um, the, 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 the potential banning of guns means that this country is just falling apart, hey, maybe. Maybe that um, that North Korea's testing of nuclear weapons is just going to be the end. Possibly. I think we live in a time where it's it's a lot more common to find people who are hopeless than to find people who are just ridiculously filled of hope. And I don't know that that's unique to our situation and, and our world that we live in right now. I think that's just the way that it's always been. That it's been pretty easy to lose hope. It's been pretty easy to sort of lose a grip on hope. I, I think it's in similar to just reaching your hand into a bucket of water and trying to grab a handful. And coming up a little bit empty. Hope, hope can be slippery, can it? I mean, we have things that happen in, in life and the world that we live in where, where it just seems like hope, it's just tough to get a grip on it sometimes. And in fact, if you really think about hope, 
It's something that we all need and it's something that we all want. But on a certain level, don't we all hate that we need it? Doesn't it just sort of ache our soul a little bit to know that, that hope is something that we just on a very base human level need? Because it means that things aren't necessarily right. I mean, listen to the way that the book of Romans talks about this and and Paul talking about the redemption that we have. And he says, for in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees. Do you know that in heaven you won't have to have hope? I mean, there's not going to be anything that you're waiting for. There's nothing that's on the horizon that you're looking forward to, that the the future is going to be brighter than the present. See, we all we all need hope. We all want hope, but we wish we didn't need it. And I think it gets a little bit slippery. In fact, it's anonymous author wrote, human beings can live for 40 days without food, for four days without water, for four minutes without air, but we cannot live for four seconds without hope. And I think we all know people who it just seems like they just lost grip on hope. Uh, We're going to read a passage this morning where um, there's two women who are getting close. They're getting close. And their, their brother, who they love very much, has died. And we're going to jump sort of into the middle of the story and we're going to look at what it looks like to be people who, who are just holding on to hope by the, by the faintest grip that we have left. And then I want to rewind and look at the framework that Jesus gives the disciples as they're walking to see these two women who are in desperate need the, the grip that Jesus gives these men on hope is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And although we wish we didn't need it, as followers of Jesus, we should be people who are filled with it. And look at the way that John chapter 11, if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 11 with me as we dig back into the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And here's how verse 17 through 22 reads. It says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. That's significant because in the the Jewish mind, that means he's really gone. You know, he's not just part dead anymore. He's fully dead. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, in this day and this time, people took mourning very seriously. In fact, you could be a professional mourner. You could show up at people's funerals, at at these processions, and you could be one of the people along the side of the road that just wailed and cried out to God, expressing, helping to express the pain of this family. And so you have to see there's a lot of people around him and there's a lot of people who are heartbroken with them. They've entered into this pain of Mary and Martha and they said, we're going to we're going to walk with you. We're going to mourn with you. We're going to seek God on your behalf. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them 
concerning their brother. Have you ever been at that place in life where you just needed somebody to console? Literally, the word means to encourage or to bring hope. Where it was like your hope tank was just on empty and you needed other people to come and to encourage you and to walk with you. I mean, this is where they're at. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and she met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Don't you love the picture? I mean, Martha runs to go and to see him. And Mary's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going. I'm going to I'm going to sit right here because I know that if Jesus wanted to, he could have done something. He could have showed up. He could have been here on time. And so I think Mary's doing a little bit of pouting. She wants Jesus to know, hey, that was not okay. I counted on you and you didn't show up for me. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. I don't know that... Martha even knows exactly what she's asking, but you can see this sort of clouds part a tiny bit and this little sliver of hope starts to show its face. This this glimmer of just maybe, maybe Jesus can do something about it. Now, Mary's in a very different place. She's just in her home and she is, I think, hopeless. And Martha sort of carries the the flame of just a little flicker of just maybe, maybe Jesus will show up and he'll do something. You ever been at that place, though, where it just felt like the world had just caved in on you? And, and hope, was, hope was something that you thought of in your head as a sort of a nice idea, but it didn't intersect with your life at all because the circumstances of your life have just told you there's no reason to have this thing that we call hope. I think we live in a world that's in constant turmoil. And and this situation that Mary and Martha are in will be or has been our situation. And maybe it's a death of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's who, who knows what it is for you. But in some way, shape or form, we all find ourselves in this story at some place in our life. And so where do we go to find hope? Here's what the psalmist writes. He says, why are you down, cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in what? Who? God. Well, that sounds like a real, real sort of Bible answer, doesn't it? I mean, it's like sort of one of those answers that people put on a mug, right? The hope in God mug. And every time you drink it, you're like, yeah, I should hope in God. And in the back of our mind, we go, I don't know what that really means. I don't really know how to do that. I don't really know how that intersects with my life other than I just fake it and pretend like everything's going okay when it's really not. It's sort of one of those nice Sunday school answers. Hey, kids, who should we hope in? We should hope in God. Right. Here's some goldfish, you know? (laughs) But when it really comes down to it, how do we live lives that have a grip on hope? 
when it seems like it just is slipping through our hands. See, see, Jesus, on the way to meet Mary and Martha, I think gives us a few grips that if we're willing to hold on to these things, we can be people who navigate the tumultuous storms of life and hold on to hope. So let's rewind a little bit and see what Jesus said in the first 16 verses of this passage. And I want to start with verses 1 through 4. If you were here last week, we camped out here, and I want to take a little bit of a different angle because we didn't really talk about this portion of this passage last week. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. We talked about that. And so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And isn't it great to know that in the storms of life, in the trials of life, God has not withdrawn his love for us, that he still loves us. And we can drop anchor on that fact no matter what comes at us. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, let let me just let that sink in. He just said that his good friend, Lazarus, died so that he would get glory. That's a borderline offensive statement. I mean, can we be, can we be, I know it's a, I know we're in church, but can we be honest for a second? That is a statement where we go, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know if I'm okay with that. I don't know. I don't know, Jesus. I don't know if I agree with that. You're putting Mary and Martha through an extreme amount of pain, through a lot of hurt, through a lot of questions. They're having to be consoled by people just so that you can get glory. And Jesus responds, yep, that's why. That should shock us a bit. That should cause us to step back a bit. Because God using, causing something like this so that his name would be praised, so that he would be made more glorious? Couldn't you, God, hey, hey, hey. I'm okay with you getting glory, God, but can't I tell you how you should get it? And here's what Jesus does. Jesus reframes for us the conversation. He takes the conversation out of Lazarus and Lazarus being sick and even Lazarus being dead. And he frames it for us in the grander, larger narrative of all that God is doing in the world. And he says, listen, this isn't just about Lazarus. This isn't just about Lazarus' sickness. This is about what I'm doing in the world. This is about my glory being made known. And he takes it and he reframes sickness and even tragedy in the bigger plan of what he is doing in the world. You see, here, here's my proposal in the whole series is that this story isn't really all that much about Lazarus. I mean, he's dead for most of it. <laughs> this story isn't all that much about Lazarus. 
It's not about Lazarus's death and it's not about Lazarus's resurrection as it is about Jesus's death and Jesus's resurrection and your pending death and your pending resurrection. And he alludes to it right here. This isn't about Lazarus. This is about my glory. This is about the story that I'm telling in the meta narrative of history about what I'm doing in the world, not just little Lazarus. You see, you can go to the town of Bethany today. It's not called Bethany anymore. But you can go to the town of Bethany and you can find a little chapel that's built over a tomb. Lazarus's tomb. Because Lazarus eventually goes on to die again. And I don't know if I want to make this whole story about a guy who's currently in the ground when the person telling it isn't. When Jesus is alive and well, no chapel built over his tomb, friends. And Jesus says, hey, I want to take this, I want to take this little story and I want to make it about the bigger story that I'm telling in the world. And see, here's the deal. If we're going to be people who, even in the dark times in life, the trials of life, the really stormy seasons where we don't think there's an out, if we're going to be people who hold on to hope, we need to hear Jesus awakening us to this hope by inviting us to trade our story for his glory. To trade our story for his glory. And see, here's the deal. Knowing that God is at work in every situation. Yes, every situation. For his glory allows us to get a grip on hope. And if somehow we miss that. If we miss that God is at work, even in the dark times in life, even in the trials of life, even in what seem like hopeless times, if we miss that underneath it is a God who's working for his name and for his glory, I think we're going to be people who have a very transcendent hope that it's slippery. I don't know about you, though. I don't I don't want a slippery hope. I don't want to I don't want a hope that lets me down when I need it. I want to hope that sustains me when life gets difficult and when it gets hard. And see what Jesus says is the way that you start to have a grip on hope is you see that God is at work in all situations at all times through all people. Yeah, through all people for his name. And for his glory. See, the hard part is that in order to see that and in order to be a part of that, I need to let go of my glory. And hey, can I be really honest with you? There's days when I like my glory better than I like his. There's days where I like my, my comfort more than I like his glory. There's days where I like my stuff more than I like his glory. There's days where it's hard for me to get on board with a God who says I'm doing everything I do for my name and for my glory. This word glory literally means it's like it's, like, it's weight. It's weight. If you were to take a, a small stone and throw it into a pond, it would make a small splash, right? I mean, that stone has small glory. If you were to take a boulder and drop it into that same lake, it would make, it would displace way more water 
That stone has a bigger glory. It's literally God's weight, his splendor, his beauty, his majesty, his name in the world. And did you know that from start to finish in Scripture, God is passionately zealous for his own glory? Okay, buckle up. I want to take you on a little tour of the glory of God in Scripture. Um, I think this verse gives us a great sort of foundation to jump off of. I'm not going to read every verse uh, that I reference. I will post them online because there's a lot of them and you may want to study them um, at your leisure. But Isaiah chapter 48 verses 9 through 11 gives us a good foundation and it reads like this. God says, for my name's sake, I defend my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. God is for his glory. He's for his name. Listen to this. God chose his people for his glory. Ephesians chapter 1. God created us for his glory. Isaiah chapter 43. God called Israel for his glory. Isaiah 49. God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. Psalm 106. God raised Pharaoh up to show his power in order to glorify his name. Romans chapter 9. God defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea to show his glory. God spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his name. God gave Israel victory in Canaan for the glory of his name. God did not cast away his people for the glory of his name. God saved Jerusalem from attack. Why? Just making sure you're still with me. There's going to be a theme. I hope you get it. God restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name. Jesus sought the glory of God, the Father, in all that he did. John chapter 7, Jesus told us to do good works so that God would get glory. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus warned that not seeking God's glory makes faith impossible. John chapter 5, Jesus said that he answers prayer so that God would be glorified. John 14, Jesus endured his final hour of suffering for God's glory. John chapter 12, God gave his son to vindicate the glory of his righteousness. Romans chapter 3, God forgives our sin for his sake. Isaiah chapter 43. I need a drink. <clears throat> the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify God. God instructs us. Here's, a, here's one. God instructs you to do everything you do for the glory of God. Um, look at the way that 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 puts this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, sort of all-encompassing, huh? Whatever you do, eat, eat drink, Play, work, sleep, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Ever tried to practice that one? Now it's not exactly it's not exactly easy, especially you're stuck in traffic. How do I how do I drive to the glory of God? Man. God tells us that God tells us to serve in a way that will glorify him. Um, all are under judgment for dishonoring God's glory. Romans chapter 1 and 3. 
Herod struck dead because he did not give God glory, Acts chapter 12. Jesus is coming again for the glory of God, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Jesus' ultimate aim for us is that we see and enjoy his glory. Even in God's wrath, his aim is to make his glory and the wealth of his glory known, Romans chapter 9. God's plan is to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. Listen to this in Habakkuk chapter 2. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as, wa- as the waters cover the sea. You ever been out in the ocean in a boat? A lot of water out there. He's saying, yeah. The destination, the, the ultimate destiny of this Earth is that God's glory would cover it all. Cover it all. Everything will redound to the glory of God, Romans chapter 11 states. Did you know that in the New Jerusalem, there's no need for a sun? Because God's glory, his magnificence, his majesty lights the place up. Listen to the way that Revelation 21 puts it. And the city has no need for a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. I um, I, I wrestled with this for a long time in my faith. I, I thought, God, that seems a little bit narcissistic. I mean, for you to just be about your glory. I mean, are, are you serious, God? Are you, are you insecure? That you need me, that you create us in order to give you glory, in order to give you honor, in order to give you praise. Is that what this is about, God? And that even you, you, you sickness to do this? Isn't that a little twisted, God? And see, here's the deal. I want us to take a little bit of a different perspective on it today because the best thing God can do for you is be about his glory. The best thing that God can do is to be about his glory and to be about his name and to be about his fame in this world. Why? Why? Because here's the deal. I'm going to give you two reasons. I'm going to fly through these. One, if God is for his name and for his glory in all situations and all circumstances in life, then he is after your joy, not after your duty-driven submission. I haven't seen a lot of people, a lot of kids glorify or lift up their parents by just going, yeah, I'll do it. And God's desire for you is that he would make you fully alive, that we would point to him, that we would praise his glorious name, that we would point to his majesty and his splendor as we are fully alive in him. I love the way that John Piper puts it when he says, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. That we would be people who are deeply satisfied By the God of the universe. Two, I'll give you one more reason. If God's the center of it all, then I'm not. If God's the center of it all, then you're not. 
And you think if you're really able to apply that to your life, how your marriage might look a little bit different. If that person doesn't just have to, to serve you and wait on you and make you happy. You think of how, how work might look a little bit different. I think it has the potential to completely change everything about it. I struggle though. I struggle that Jesus doesn't consult me and how he gets glory through my life. And see, my, my role in this is to find satisfaction in Him, to submit to Him, to long for His presence, to soak in His presence, to appreciate, to see every, every circumstance that comes through my life and in my life as an opportunity to glorify Him and lift Him high and to long for a, a deeper sustaining glory as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 16 that 8 through 18, a weight of glory that far outweighs this all. That's my role. And he gets to choose what he brings into my life in order to glorify himself. And so the question for us this morning is, are we willing to let go of our own plan and our own desire and our own glory? Because unless we are, hope will always be slippery. It will always be slippery. See, the story goes on in Luke chapter... Oh, hey, thank you. Natalia, you rock. The story goes on in verses 5 through 11 to say this. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was still ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. We talked about that a little bit last week. Jesus is just casually late. Doesn't want to be the first one to the party. Then after he said this to the disciples, after he said this to the disciples, let us go up to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And now you want to go there again? And if you read back in John chapter 10, you'll see Jesus leaves Judea because there's this uprising where they want to take his life. And so he says to them, hey, let's go on a little stroll. Let's go see our friend Lazarus and his disciples, I think, rightly respond to him and say, hey, Jesus, a few days ago, they wanted to kill you there. You sure that's where you want to go? You sure that's what you want to do? Listen to Jesus's response, because I think we need to understand the context in order to understand what he says here. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. He asked this sort of rhetorical question. Are there not 12 hours in the day? And to his Jewish audience, they divided the day really in two. And and there was sort of 12 hours of day and there was 12 hours of daylight. Unless it's daylight savings time, then 11. So I guess Jesus' question doesn't always hold true. But the people are going, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, there are. Well, what's his point in it? 
His point is the hour of the day is fixed, guys. You can't, you can't do anything to change it. You can't do anything to lengthen it. You can't do anything to shorten it. And he says, hey, so is the same about my life. No one's going to take my life. This is what Jesus is saying. No one's going to take my life from me before it's time. Did you know that, that a huge component of whether we are able to have a hope that transcends circumstance is whether or not we're convinced that God is sovereign over it all. And you see, Jesus' conviction about the sovereignty of his father allows him to walk back into a tumultuous time and experience because he's convinced that he will not die before God says he'll die. And I think the same is true for us. Jesus longs to awaken us to hope by giving us a confident trust in God's providential hand that in the midst of it all, He is at work. The Bible affirms time and time again God's sovereignty. And we started off with a a psalm this morning, Psalm 115. And in verse 3 it says God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. That's a good news for us. It means he's happy. Whatever pleases him. You're not going to find it on a lot of coffee cups. Probably not going to find it on a lot of t-shirts. But it's true. But is it true about our life too? I mean, it's true on a macro level. Is it true on a, on a micro level? Look at the way that the psalmist writes this in Psalm 139. Writing about God, he says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully, I'm wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden for you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, my unformed body, and in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Before any of them came to be, he said, this is how long they will be. Jesus is saying, hey, it may seem like it on the surface, but but nobody dies before their time. That somehow, in some way, and I know that there's some pain in that as we listen to that and we go, no, 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 God, this didn't work out the way that I hoped it would or the way that I thought you should do it. But what Jesus is saying is that he holds it all. He's fearless, willing to walk into the darkest situations because he is convinced God is sovereign. He's providential over all of it. And you want to have a grip on hope. When it seems like nothing has gone your way, in the darkest times in life, I'm convinced that God is saying, in those times, will you believe that even in this, I'm working for my glory, and will you believe that even in this, I'm powerful? See, he's not asking us to understand. He's not asking us to understand it all. He's asking us to trust him in it. There's a big difference 
There's a big difference, friends. I think most of us, myself included, we want to understand, but he's saying, will you trust? Will you trust? Even when? I had this friend who um, is a missionary in China, and he had an opportunity to go with some other friends to, uh, to Pakistan to um, work with the underground church a little bit. And so he wrote to his parents and told them about this opportunity. And his parents said, no, absolutely not. I'm glad that that opportunity is there. May somebody else seize the day. And his response back to him, I'll never forget his mom sharing this to me with tears in her eyes. His response back to his parents was, mom and dad, I am immortal until Jesus says I'm not. And that perspective of God's providence allowed him to walk into a situation that that he shouldn't have walked into and to do it with confidence. Let me ask you, friend, do do you have the same perspective? Do you have the same perspective? John goes on to record for us. Oops. John goes on to record for us, and I'll just read it. It's not on my notes. I'm sorry. Verses 12 through 16 that say the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. They're not that quick, you know. Um, I I read about the disciples and I say, oh, man, praise the Lord. God can use people like them because then he can use people like me. I mean, he's beating them over the head, telling them what's going on and they don't get it. And so he says, all right, let me break this down for you. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. So that you may believe. But let us go to him. And Thomas called the twin. He he looked a lot like Jesus. That's what sort of church tradition tells us. So as Jesus is walking back into this sort of lion's den, this electric atmosphere of people that want to kill him, listen to Thomas's response. Let us go. That we may die with him. <laughs> Do you love Thomas? Seriously, Jesus? Obviously not as convinced of the providential, powerful hand of God. Seriously, Jesus? So, so we want to go back there. All right, glad I look exactly like you. <laughs> Convenient <clears throat> for everybody else. Did you catch it though? Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. I mean, and in all of this, it's, this, is, this is the point. This is where John's taking us to. This is what the story is really about. It's not about Lazarus who comes back to life, because Lazarus eventually goes back into the ground. It's about a God who says, will you trust me in the midst of it all? And I'm willing to orchestrate the circumstances of your life, the times of your life and all of it in order to take you to one spot. And it's that spot of belief that you would be convinced that in it all, I am good and that in it all, I am enough. And friends, if we want to have a grip on hope, on slippery hope, when life seems to take turns that are unexpected and undesirable for us. See, Jesus awakens us to this hope by stirring our hearts to see him as our supreme treasure. 
and her source of joy. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is, friends, I will be enough. When the world seems like it's caving in, I'll be enough. When hope gets slippery and it feels like it's just not a part of your life, I'll be enough. When the circumstances dictate that you should be absolutely, absolutely destroyed, I will be enough. And a few minutes later, he's going to say to Lazarus, Hey, Lazarus, why don't you come on out? And why? Why does he do it? Well, we're going to talk about it over the next few weeks, but, but one of the reasons he explicitly states here is not so that Lazarus would get a few more years on this earth. That's not why Jesus raises him from the dead. Jesus raises him from the dead so that the people who are there would believe that in the darkest times of life, he is sufficient, that even in death, he is enough. And when we get a grip like that on who Jesus is, and we stop asking the question, God, why? And we transition to saying, God, help me to see you as being sufficient. Help me to see you as being enough. Help me to see you as being here and being present. Did you know that God tells us not to fear? Not because he's going to explain it all to us, but he says, do not fear for I am with you. That's why he says, don't fear. And when life gets real and life gets hard, sometimes... This is all we're left with. Is this question? Jesus, will you be enough? Will you be enough even if you don't do what I hope you will do? Will you be enough? Jesus, is my hope going to be in what you bring to me or, or in the fact that you have brought yourself to me? Will you be enough? Jesus, will, will what you've done already, past tense, be enough? And so he points right at his disciples and says, hey, you're going to see something that is going to blow your mind. Why? Because I want you to know that I'm sufficient. And the fight for faith, friends, is the fight to see, to taste, and to know that he is sufficient. Amen. When you're able to see his glory and fight for it in all situations, when, when we're able to, when we're able to trust that he is God and that he is in charge and that he's never said whoops or oh no or plan B, and when we're able to say, hey, Jesus, I'm trusting as you, in you as my supreme treasure and my source of joy. We'll be people of hope. Even when our circumstances don't dictate that we should. A supreme hope, a supreme desire and conviction of a future good. I pray that it would get in us in a way that way will get out of us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we